0: Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations, the power the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together, we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today my very special guest is the historian Jesse Childs. How are you today, Jesse?
1: I'm very good, thanks, Deb. We are though I'm in London and we're in a heat wave. I think it's very nearly forty degrees. So we're not used to it here. It's a little bit hot and sticky, but otherwise happy.
0: That's good to know. Now, how does forty degrees translate into American
1: Fahrenheit? Oh gosh. I don't know. We must be we must be up in the high nineties or something. That's not my forte. Yeah, but that's... Yeah, it's pretty high. It's pretty high. And and it's sort of when you're surrounded by concrete and pavement, it's uh, we need water desperately.
0: Yes, you do. And the funniest thing of all is that I'm over here, apparently, in the American South, and you're about 15 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than we are. So it's kind of a strange phenomenon we're in right now, because this is our September weather. It is. I
1: could do with some tips
0: there. find air conditioning and iced tea. (laughs) Perfect.
1: Perfect. We
0: can do that. Well, I have so many questions for you, and I am almost giddy. I'm so thrilled that you're here today. I want to know, of course, tell me about your love of history. How did that come about?
1: Hmm, That's never really one thing. I... I remember I have Scottish cousins. I remember going to Scottish castles, sort of craggy cold, windswept castles, and always finding that quite romantic, thinking of Mary Queen of Scots and and, um, Robert the Bruce and things. Um, And I also was a bit of a tomboy, so I loved – my dad used to take me to the Chamber of Horrors at Madame Tussauds with my big sis, and I always found that quite fascinating and grisly. Um, What else? Priest holes in country houses where the the Elizabethan priests used to hide. And also, actually, my father's side of the family – his mother was Russian. She was a Russian refugee from the from the revolution. She was one of the white Russians who fled after the revolution. And only recently have I realized and found out that her mother's side uh, were from Kharkiv in Ukraine, and her father's side uh, were from present day Dnipro. So that's really interesting. And she was um, still a child when she fled the revolution and she met my grandfather, my father's father, He was with the foreign office, the British foreign office there. And um, he got her out and he met her on a railway siding on the road to, you know, on the way down to Odessa. So it's kind of this wonderfully romantic story. And I grew up listening to that and how um, I never met her. But from my father saying how she would sort of hide her, they would sew their jewels into their clothes or, or hide them in loaves of bread. And then um, they had this quite interesting life also in what was then Constantinople, Istanbul. Uh, he worked for the League of Nations and was, uh, was trying to sort of settle refugees. And then he was actually in Washington before the Second World War, um, trying to get America involved in the war. Um, and he was in various posts and legations and then was shot down in 1943 between uh, Iran and Iraq. So quite an interesting life there and I always sort of heard those stories so I think uh, like with everyone history is a sort of mixture of atmosphere and passion and identity and also I'm going on a bit now but I had this wonderful teacher I had I was very lucky with all my history teachers but I remember one particularly called Mr. Stunt and it was a rainy day and he wasn't our usual teacher but he was filling in and um So he just sort of went off curriculum and he gave us all a piece of paper and it had 16th century handwriting on it. And he asked us to try and decipher it. And I found that really cool, really interesting. It was sort of like code breaking. And I sort of hadn't thought about it before because all the sources had always been printed before. Um, And we've been dictated notes and it was all kind of facts and uh, gobbets. And this is what you need to learn. And it just suddenly made it real to me and that sort of tangible feeling that 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 people had actually written this down and that there are smudges and there are blurs and some people had great writing and some people have terrible handwriting. And I don't know, just as a child studying the early modern period, it suddenly pinged for me that that lesson. So
0: do you believe it was just a combination of the Scottish influence and of course the history that surrounded you every day and your teacher that led you into studying the Tudors and tutor history.
1: Yes, I think so. I think um, you are sort of guided by what's on the school curriculum, and we very early on did the Tudors, and then I did it. I did it for GCSE, which is around sixteen years old, and then for A levels uh, at around eighteen years old. And then I went to um, Oxford, Brazenose College, Oxford, and studied history there, which is sort of uh, it's known as modern history, but actually that covers. Um, early modern history as well, and loved it, but never really thought that it would be my career. I was sort of a bit, I just had fun at uni. <laughs> and I didn't really think that careers <laughs> all that much. Um, um, I had a lot of friends who were sort of, you know, sure that they were going to be lawyers, or they were going to be bankers, or this or that. And um, it sort of got to the end. And I thought, oh, hell, I better, you know, I've got to make some money <laughs> at some point. So... I knew I didn't want to be an academic. I really wanted to sort of not study so much um, and, and do anything too stringent. Um, it makes me sound very lazy and reckless, doesn't it? But uh, then I went to London and so I worked for a, a TV production company that did historical documentaries. So that's how I sort of started doing history as a career. Didn't last very long. I was a PA and um, I had a uh, quite a demanding boss. And honestly, I have so much respect for anyone who is a PA, a personal assistant, a secretary, because for me it's the hardest job I've ever done. Um, But doing that sort of got me to read more of the popular history books, so-called, you know, the trade books. I sort of only really read the academic books at university. So I read Alison Weir and and people like that, and I actually had lunch with Alison. Um, We were trying to get her involved in a documentary, I think. So I had a lovely lunch with her and she was so nice, so supportive. So encouraging, um, and so I kind of thought, yeah, I'm going to try and write a popular history book. So it sort of stemmed from there. And my first book was about Henry Howard, who was the uh, the Earl of Surrey, the last chap executed by Henry VIII. And i come across him at university and always wanted to know more. So I thought, yeah, he's the one. We're very glad you went into
0: writing. And I forgot to mention that you've won about maybe ten pages. Worth of awards from your writing career, you have really been able to accomplish a great deal with your writing. And you're so accomplished. And now we know why you love the Tudors. What compelled you to start writing?
1: Well, I think it was a mixture of of wanting to know more about the Earl of Surrey and just the arrogance of youth. You know, I was in my 20s and I just thought, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> Which I, I don't think if I'm starting now, I'd be quite so sure of myself. Um, and thank you, by the way, for, for saying that about the prizes. It, gross exaggeration, but I love you for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so I... I, I what. I um, saw an advert in a newspaper that was advertising a prize and it was called the Biographers Club Prize. And what was really cool about it was it was a prize for an uncommissioned author for their first book. And it wasn't even for the first written book. It was just for a proposal, a synopsis. So that was perfect for me at that time. Um, So I just, you know, rattled off a little synopsis about the Earl of Surrey and how interesting he is. And uh, I didn't win the prize, but I was a runner up. And, and, and through that, uh, I got my agent because he was running the prize. And then through him, I got my publisher. And uh, back in those days, it was you tended to sort of have two book deals rather than single book deals. So I had a two book deal and had to come up with idea number two as well for the next book. So that sort of gave me some structure and, and set me on my way.
0: Well, let's talk about Henry Howard. You said the impulsiveness of youth. Is that your quote about yourself or your quote about him?
1: What drew you to him? That's really interesting. I've never thought of that. But I was actually, I was, I think when it was published, I was 29, which is the same age he was when he was executed. So maybe there was a bit of... um, Identification there. Although he was he was a bit of a sport brat. I hope I wasn't a sport brat. But what really drew me to him, at least initially, was his voice, his lyrical voice, um, his poetry. Because I hadn't heard anything like it before. And it was, that was at university, that was a course called Literature and Politics in Early Modern England. And it was taught by Susan Brigdom. And it really was one of the best. Um, but we got Wyatt and Surrey, Sir Thomas Wyatt and, and the Earl of Surrey, got one week between them to share. And so I felt like I wanted to know more and read more. And what was amazing about Surrey is how unguarded he is. If you look at Sir Thomas Wyatt's poetry, he's very slippery and circumspect and careful. But Surrey... Um, partly, I think, because he's a nobleman, and so he had more power. He And he's still careful, but it's very obvious who he's talking about. You know, if he talks about rulers whose glutton cheeks sloth feeds so fat that scant their eyes be seen, you know, you immediately think of Henry VIII. Or he, he talks about rulers wedded to will who work without advice, or or the bitter fruit of false concupiscence. And um, you know he's talking about Henry VIII, but because he sort of wraps it in translations, whether they're classical or or biblical, he sort of gets away with it. And the other reason I find him so interesting was because of his place at court. His poetry gives you this this insight into court, but, but just physically he has this great position there. He is the son of the third Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Howard. He is the first cousin of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. Um, And he was also the best friend and later brother-in-law of Henry Fitzroy, Henry VIII's illegitimate son. So uh, he was a sort of unofficial tutor, but they were really just sort of best friends. And he, he wrote these beautiful elegiac poems when Fitzroy died young um, about how much he missed him and and what a brilliant, wonderful childhood they had together, sort of hunting and hawking and traveling to France. So he's Very well situated. And then, of course, at the very end of Henry VIII's reign, Surrey is the last victim. That's why I call the book Henry VIII's Last Victim, because he is the last one to be executed by Henry VIII. And it's very much caught up in this factional rivalry and religious rivalry that goes on um, over the body and soul of, of Henry VIII. And Surrey, even though he was a reformer, an evangelical, um, by faith. He was very much seen as one of the political conservatives, you know, his his father's son. And so um, he was, he was got rid of. And again, you see in his poetry, him saying things like, um, uh, what is it? Rain those unbridled tongues, break that conjured league. And you can just feel his fury and his anger sort of blistering
0: through the lines. That's so true. And in his poetry, he does give a nod to Sir Francis Bryan, which, of course, there's not a lot of information on. And I guess the group of them were quite the hellraisers, weren't they? Yes,
1: I think sorry was another vicar of hell. <laughs> I think they had a lot of fun together. Um, I could get away with a lot. sorry i start the book actually but i think the prologue this is a long time ago this is in 2006 that it was published so my memory is a bit shaky but i i start the prologue with with surrey and his friends um going off on boats and they, they ride across the thames from the north Bank to the South Bank, the seedy South Bank, and and they pelt all the prostitutes on the South Bank with with stones, and then they and then they row back and and they sort of throw smash windows and and, and really cause hell and a, a bit like a sort of Bullingdon Club, you know. Boris Johnson was was famed for the Bullingdon Club where they would smash windows and behave appallingly badly, and and actually that's the side of Surrey that I really don't like that sort of sense of um, entitlement and uh, snobbery. I mean he was very rude about people like. Paget William Paget, He called him a catchpole. In other words, just a sort of a bailiff, a, an official. Um, and, and Cromwell as well. He called him a foul churl. Um, and he was absolutely delighted when Cromwell fell. How long did it take you to research
0: him? And how did you research the book? Gosh,
1: it's always a bit embarrassing because I take twice as long as everyone else. <laughs> and well, my my sort of latter day excuse for that is because I've got children. But actually, I, did, I didn't, I, you know, I, I can't really use that earlier on. Um, I just love manuscripts, actually. So I sort of do all the obvious stuff and read all the textbooks and read all the secondary works and read all the printed primary matter. But I am quite scrupulous about going back to the original sources, going back to the manuscripts. Um I think especially with. The abstracted catalogues, so talking about something like The Letters and Papers of Henry VIII. These are wonderful, great big books that catalog all the letters and papers of the reign, and they abstract them. They give you little printed summaries. And what a lot of people do is just quote from those, which is fine if it's just something small you want to highlight. But if you actually want to quote the material, you really should go back to the manuscript and and quote it verbatim and you get so much more stuff that way i certainly found that with my second book as well when there were two very interesting women who were the sort of key characters and because these calendars of state papers were um catalogued largely by men not all not exclusively but mainly by men and indexed by men they sometimes would leave the women out so again if you go back to the source you find far more information about them than you would in the summary. The other thing about Surrey that was that was a real find for me. Again, you, you get uh you can go to the British Library, and there are shelves and shelves and shelves of sort of abstracted summaries from the Historical Manuscripts Commission, which basically detailed where manuscripts were in all the private. Country houses and all the libraries and archives in the land. Amazing resource. And it said there quite tantalizingly that there were two letters from uh William Paget to the Earl of Surrey, really close to um, the final days of Surrey's life during the conspiracy against him. And again, it was just a line saying, you know, there's this, it didn't tell you what was in there. So I went, they they belonged to a family called Beddingfield in Ottsborough Hall. In Norfolk, and so I went there, and it was it was so cool. There was such a lovely couple, and they just sort of let me into their library, pulled out this trunk, opened it up, and uh, let me rifle through it. And so that was a whole new experience about about what being a historian can be. It, it's not always in sort of air conditioned libraries with someone you know peering over your shoulder. And in fact, they sort of, they gave offered me tea and biscuits while I was looking at them, and I was far too terrified of spilling anything on, on the manuscripts. But it was um, it was just a sort of um it was a good thing early in my career to come across something like that and, and realize that you must keep asking, you must keep looking. And what you think is the sum of all the knowledge is rarely the case. You know, there's there's pretty much always something new to find if you squirrel about and, and look hard enough. That is so
0: true. And people are literally finding new things every day, aren't they? Yeah, exactly.
1: And I found actually with my second book, This was really cool as well, because the second book was, it was called God's Traitors, and it was about the recusants, the secret Catholics in Elizabeth I's reign. Um, The recusants were the ones who refused, they refused to go to Protestant church services every week. And so they were fined. So actually, they weren't so secret. They put their hands up. But then there were lots called church papists who would go to church but cross their fingers. um, Or they would put cotton wool in their ears during the sermon or sort of things like that, little mini protests saying that I don't really approve of this official Protestant service and I'm really a Catholic at heart. So I, 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 my book was about uh, one family, the Vaux family um, from Northamptonshire. And through various generations, I was looking at them. But what I found really cool researching them was that, yeah, that so many of the archives and manuscripts had been hidden, had been deliberately hidden because they were Hiding their faith, uh, various recusants and and Catholic people. So there was uh, now in the Bodleian Library, but for a very long time there was this huge mound of documents and sources that were it's it's said in the preface that they were bound up with the string of secrecy until some happy day when they could be read again and it's a whole load of sort of catholic um, songs and hymns and letters and meditations and uh, sources from people about their experience of being catholic in elizabeth first reign so that was amazing and also there was another one uh called the tresham papers which was Very useful for my research. Um, Again, they're now in the British Library, but they were discovered during building work in a house called Rushton Hall in Northamptonshire, where this family, the Tresham family, lived. And um, they'd been hidden in a lintel above a doorway soon after the gunpowder plot was discovered because... Francis Tresham was the final plotter uh, recruited into the plot and they were only discovered uh, centuries later by builders knocking through the doorway and suddenly a book tumbles out and they have a look and they suddenly see all these other papers and books so that was was very cool with that book That is absolutely remarkable is what that is If you're a fan of Tudor history come join us at All Things Tudor a Facebook group dedicated to well All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group and, of course, answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you.
0: Let's talk about God's Traitors in case no one's ever heard about that. That's absolutely one of my favorite books. Oh, lovely. Thank you. So let's, let's walk our listeners through it
1: so they'll know more about it. Yes, I did it through three generations. I first came across them. When I was reading Antonia Fraser's fabulous book about the gunpowder plot. And it's really one of my favorite books of all time. I think she's so terrific. And she talks about these two sisters, Eleanor Brooksby and Anne Vaux. And their code names were The Widow and The Virgin. And they helped keep the Catholic flame alive in England. During the persecution, they would harbour priests. Priests were not allowed in England after 1585. A law was passed stating that any priest, Catholic priest, who set foot on English soil would automatically be deemed a traitor and would be hanged, drawn, or quartered if he was caught. That's why we have priest holes up and down the country. It's not hide and seek. It's it's a deadly, deadly game um, of life and death. Uh, so they would. Com- rent these houses, and they would have priestels in them, and they would basically look after the priests and hide them when the priest hunters came, and they would feed them, and they would travel with them, and they would fund them, and they would fund the mission, the mission to keep Catholicism alive. Very important, ladies. But um, what I wanted to do, as well as write about them, was try to explain how this happened, because... As we're always told, Elizabeth I was a moderate ruler who didn't want to persecute. And that was was indeed the case at the beginning of her reign. So I started with the sister's father, Lord Vaux, William Vaux, um, who really wanted to still be a Catholic, but who wanted to remain loyal to the Queen as well. And that was sort of possible in the first decade of her reign when people didn't look too closely. But the moment the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth I in 1517, it was a nightmare for Catholics. They were caught between a rock and a hard place, really, because you have a choice between two betrayals, either betraying the Pope, your spiritual father, in which case you're told that you will go to hell, um, or you betray the Queen. And then you start being subjected to fines and imprisonment. And as the reign goes on, everything cranks up. And then there is torture and execution. If you harbour a priest, even if you're not a priest yourself, you also will swing for it after 1585. You can be executed. So it gets particularly grisly. But I start with Lord Vaux and you sort of see how this all cranks up and carries on. And then you have the plots, some of which uh, the Vauxs. If they weren't involved in it, they certainly knew about them. And it's a sort of shady area if you're funding priests and they end up being involved in plots, things like the Babington plot. And then we have the Armada when the voices are, are imprisoned as a precaution. You have control orders brought in. So Catholics can't travel within five miles of their home without a license and things like that. And, and, and it becomes a, a persecution indeed, even if Elizabeth I would have preferred not to have had that. And so then, in the end, I sort of carry on through after Elizabeth's reign. It sort of climaxes with the gunpowder plot, which is very much an Elizabethan legacy, I see it as. You have these angry young men who are second-generation recusants. They're the sons of the men who have been paying the fines and being imprisoned in Elizabeth's reign. And they've had enough. You know, They don't want to wait anymore. So they need to do something about it. As Robert Catesby, who was the Vaux's cousin, said, he said, the nature of the disease requires so sharp a remedy. So um, one cannot at all ever condone that. It would have been mass murder of a scale, you know, unimaginable at the time. But I wanted to seek to understand how they got to that position.
0: Well, your work was just brilliant. So thank you for going into that for us. And you've recently released a new book, correct, called Loyalty House. And this would be after the tutor. So that's one thing we do. We're all things tutor, but we also understand there was history before and after. So what can you tell us about Loyalty House? Oh, lots.
1: And I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because so many people... Sort of had this choice. Uh, Certainly, it's a sort of at school. It's sort of Tudors or Stuarts, and so people pick the Tudors partly because it's so fun. You know, the six wives and the soap operas. You can see why people are drawn to them, but also because it then becomes familiar. And they are on telly. They're on film. But the Stuarts are so interesting too. And and if you look at I don't know Shakespeare. Or Inigo Jones, the great architect of the Stuart period. He was actually an Elizabethan for 30 years. He was born in 1573. So there's so much continuity. And I think if you understand the Stuart period and the civil war that we had in England in the mid-17th century, then you understand the Tudors much better also because there's a lot of looking backwards and a lot of the accounts of 17th century and they look back at the Tudors as a golden age, which perhaps it wasn't. Necessarily so much, but as far as my book goes, yes, it's called *The Siege of Loyalty House*, and it's out at the moment in the UK. It's coming out in the states in January, I think. And it is about, I thought, because I think honestly, I think this period is is the most important in British history, the Civil War, especially right now. There are a lot of very bright, very well educated people who don't even know that we had a Civil War in England, and that's not their fault. They, you know, we just aren't really taught it here, but. We chopped off the head of a king. We had a civil war that claimed more lives per head in Britain than the first world war. We chopped off the head of the king at the end of it. We had a republic for 11 years. It was a serious, huge, almighty revolution. And coupled to that, it's happening at a time of culture wars and populism and Puritanism and witch hunts and a polarizing new media. And also climate change. The mid 17th century um, saw the most intense phase of the Little Ice Age. So I think it's crucial to be learning and reading about this. It's so interesting. But my challenge was, how am I going to get people interested in it when they see it as a sort of religion heavy, intimidating period and it is complicated to be fair so i focus on this one siege at Basing House in hampshire it's a royalist stronghold it belongs to the marquis of winchester who um, Whose family were loyal Tudor followers, especially the first Marcus of Winchester? He went through all the reigns and died at the age of 97. Uh, Elizabeth I said that if, if he'd been a younger man, she would have wanted to marry him. And his house, Basing House, was loved by the Tudors. Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII went there on their progress the famous progress now that took in Wolf Hall as well. And Mary and Philip of Spain had their honeymoon there. And Elizabeth I visited several times. So it's sort of a Tudor stately pleasure palace, really. But during the Civil War, it goes under siege by uh, the Roundheads, the parliamentarians. And for over two years, they hold out. And it's almost a bit like Maripol in Ukraine now, in the sense that everyone thought it would roll over. And the mighty war machine would destroy it entirely. And and yet they didn't, they held out, and their resistance was heroic. And one of the key characters is the Marchioness of Winchester, and she is the granddaughter of Francis and the spy master. Of Elizabeth I, which is kind of ironic because she's, she's a staunch Catholic. And he, of course, was was uh, the persecutor of Catholics. So, yeah, it, it was very interesting researching it uh, to find all these Tudor links. And uh, it's very fluid. And it was just a very, very exciting, dramatic story because of the characters who end up defending this house. A lot of them are from London. Um, I have an apothecary who was the first man to sell bananas in London and he drew them. So we have a great picture of them. Uh, We have an engraver called William Faithorn who was an astonishing talent. There's a print seller. There's a merchant. There's the first coloniser of Barbados. And there's Inigo Jones, the great architect who sort of, in a way, represented the authoritarianism of Charles I. So they're really interesting through their lives. It's almost sort of, again, like a soap opera, you sort of follow these characters and how they fare um, at the house. And what I find interesting about the siege, but also about war more generally, is the people you think are the natural leaders of society or the sort of obvious heroes aren't necessarily the ones who shine. So I think with a siege especially, I kind of think a siege is the cruelest thing any man can do to another. You know, if you think about it, you you take away food and drink, you cut off communications, you throw in disease, you play with people's hopes and fears until they are reduced to the bare bones. And that is when you see the human condition at its at its most bare and raw. And so hopefully I sort of tell a bit about, you know, explore humanity a little bit as well, the best and the worst of it. Well It sounds
0: incredible and the Tudor ties are remarkable. Do you believe the Civil War, the English Civil War gets lost because of early American settlement? That's a really interesting
1: question, Deb. I don't know, I haven't thought about it like that. Yes, maybe, maybe. It doesn't it doesn't quite chime with with the settler story. And certainly the Puritans in England, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of a chap called Hugh Peter, who was uh, very involved in the siege of Basing House at the end. Um, he was a very unpleasant character, very, very fanatical and not at all tolerant. So this idea that, you know, there would be a city on a hill and there would be freedoms, it doesn't really chime with the Puritans in London before the war. They're very active and stirring up um the various factions and pushing for war, in fact. So I've never thought about it like that, but I think that's a really interesting point. And and Hugh Peter, who who is sort of a a reviled character in English history, in fact in America, is is really quite um quite revered because he uh he was the pastor of Salem, Massachusetts, and he helped found Harvard and he helped sort of build ships and develop law codes and all sorts of worthy and good things. And he had a strong social conscience. There are lots of good things about him. But he, because of his fanaticism, he really thought that the ends justified the means in terms of obliterating Catholics. He saw them as papists. He saw them as worshippers of the beast, the Antichrist. And for him, that was existential. So, in some ways, he's quite worthy. And in America, he is, as I say, not hated in the same way that, that he is in England.
0: It's interesting you
1: say that because I've noticed
0: people traveled a lot more than we give them credit for. They traveled between the American colonies, the early colonies, and London, we'll say, especially. So, we might think, oh, they were in the Boston colony. Well, they might have been, but they you can also find records of them in London during the same era. So it, the crossover has always really intrigued me.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good point, Deb. And they did, they would, they would go back and forth. And a lot of them, including Hugh Peter, was effectively sort of settled in, in Boston, and then decided, no, he, he has to come back to England to fight this war. It, it's that important. And you get a lot of them doing that. Um, you get a lot going the other way as well, fleeing uh, and, and not wanting to be involved in the war. And you also get the the slightly different characters of the colonies, which is which is interesting as well, whether it's Jamestown or, or uh, Boston or the slightly sort of more Catholic sort of uh, you get more Catholics going to Virginia later and c- Carolina. I mean, it's not my specialism, but I find I find that fascinating. You also get at this point sort of the beginnings of the, the transatlantic slave trade which uh, and, and the West Indies and the Caribbean and that story, which, which, which is truly horrific and so bizarre because you, you have a lot of talk in England about freedom and liberty. You, know, you have John Milton going on about liberty, but it is a very narrow Christian view of liberty and uh, right at the same time, you have black Africans being forcibly transported across the Atlantic to places like Barbados. And you have the sugar trade um, really kicking off in the early 1640s. So again, it's an interesting sort of global perspective.
0: That's so true. And I called it the Boston Colony. I believe it was actually known as the Dorchester Colony. It's not my forte either, but I've read about it, of course. So where are we going from here? What Can you tell us what you have planned after this
1: one? Gosh, I don't know. I'm sort of percolating ideas at the moment, which which sounds very cagey, but it's not. It's just that I haven't landed yet on quite what I think. Partly because I was talking earlier about my grandmother and my grandfather, and a part of me really wants to explore. Their lives a little bit more, Um, and I know there's stuff in the National Archives in Kew near where I live that's sort of top secret, and 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 I want to look at some of that. But I think you know my heart is in the early modern period; it's in the 16th and 17th centuries, and I'll definitely be doing something more there as well. Uh, Otherwise, I'm I'm reviewing books, lots lots of very interesting good books at the moment that I'm reviewing. Um, So it's it's an exciting time. I think um, the 16th and 17th centuries are really having a, a great moment at the moment. They truly
0: are, and it, it's just remarkable, just the rise of all things Tudor in less than three years into its own little franchise. My baby has really taken wings. So um, this whole thing of history, it's fun seeing history and people getting so excited about history and so involved with it and wanting to know more. Do you find it to be the same? Are you as big of a nerd as, as I am?
1: Yes, totally. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I so agree with you. And I think, I don't know, I think partly it might have something to do with with the present day. I think sort of, I think the present often informs the past just as much as the other way around, our view of it. And I think because there's so much fake news now and the social media, I think it's more important than ever to have a really good filter and a really good critical faculty and, you know, to call out the lies. And I think um, being historians, all of us, we're pretty good at that. I think it helps. So I think maybe that's one one reason for its popularity. I like to think so anyway. Uh, That's a very good point. And I feel like too, with the
0: tutors, like you said, here's one man, six wives, he had two of them executed. That is not normal. And we can look at what happened then and see, well, everything survived okay. So we'll come through this somehow. And I think it helps us Get a sense of no matter how crazy things get, somehow they will work out. So that's just my take on another reason the Tudors are so popular. Plus, the complete fantasy.
1: I think yeah, I think you're right. I think it's I think having a long view is very reassuring in the present right now. You can have rulers like Henry VIII with, let's say, a Trumpian sense of injury, and uh, you have very populist. Politicians, and um, yes, you can see that we can we can get through pretty much anything. That's so true. Well,
0: I do want to ask you one last thing. Do you have a favorite book of yours? Oh. Of my own,
1: as in, as in that I wrote.
0: Yes, or is that like asking you which of your children is your favorite?
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that it is a bit. I'm kind of like I, I can't possibly pick between my babies, my firstborn, my middle child, my latest. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I, well, I would have to go. I would have to go for the the latest one just because it's most familiar to me right now. But honestly, Deb, I I, I love them all, and I get this. I get this thrill researching them so much. I, that's my favorite bit is the research. And, um, you know, there are all sorts of times when when you get to the end of the day and you didn't find what you wanted and and it's frustrating. But then when you do find something new or something that falls into place, it's just the most wonderful feeling and, and a total thrill. So I, I can't really choose a favorite, but it tends to be the thing that's most, most recent and familiar in my mind, I suppose.
0: Well, that's fair enough. Uh, just you talking about the manuscripts and the documents when you were invited to the country house. And uh, that is really what we <laughs> what we all long for, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Finding a discovery like that.
1: Yeah. And I, I honestly, I found that with the last book as well. There were all sorts of things that were new um that you know you, you the long catalogs you don't know that they're there but you just have to follow your nose you sort of just have to sniff about and be a detective and uh, I find that really fun
0: oh that I th- I think that's what drives all of us we we want to know more we we want to discover something new in some way or find out what's been hidden from us that maybe that's just why like you say, we're we're really detectives. Yeah, exactly. And spies. <laughs> we could do another podcast on that. So I, <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for being my guest today. You have been absolutely delightful and you're welcome to come back at any time.
1: Oh thank you so much. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and, and thank you to all your wonderful listeners and followers. And yes, stay cool. Thank you, Jesse. You too. Take
0: care. Lots of love. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at TheDebATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.